Uh, I'm Lynn Webster of the two she just introduced. He's the good-looking one. So uh, you know the title of our talk, um, The Visible Few. Uh, Jeff's going to give his disclosures, and then I'll give mine. Sure. Okay. So uh, you can see them all here, and I probably disclosed them like five times or ten times already. Um, but they're all listed there for you. Uh, do we really need to go through all of them? I don't think so. They're yeah. here if you want to look at them. And, of course, they're available for you online. Great. We have uh, three primary objectives here for the next hour, and uh, this is going to be kind of an exchange between both of us, so we're going to go back and forth. You might get a little dizzy with the ping-pong effect, but that's the intent. We're going to try to have this interactive, at least between the two of us, and then hopefully allow some time for questions later. But the three objectives are to discuss the impact the CDC uh, guidelines have had on a subset of our population of people with chronic pain, which we're referring to as the, the visible few. And then to talk about the differences between the intent of the guideline and really what has, uh, has occurred and some of the consequences and reactions to the CDC guidelines since they were introduced in 2016. So let me just begin with defining what we mean by the visible few. We, were, we wanted to show the, this little seven-minute video, uh, but uh, the, the owners, Fox News and all, uh, made it difficult for us to get authorization to show it to you, so we cannot. However, I would encourage all of you who have not looked at this particular video clip, it's a small clip, is to go online and watch it, because this is the population that we're talking about today. Uh, it is, they do represent, or this individual represents the visible few, uh, because it is somebody who has been heard in the media, maybe not by the politicians, maybe not by all of the healthcare system and all of the important policymakers, but they, uh, his voice and her voice have been heard because in the video, she, the, her, his, um, uh, his wife describes why he committed suicide after being taken and forced off all of his medications. So, you so, want to take it? Sure. So I, I think that we should start by, you know, the title of the presentation, where, where it came from, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, what happened was that Lynn had written a, a blog, and I responded to that blog basically with the title of this presentation. And lo and behold, Pain Week saw the response and said, hey, I'm make a really cool presentation. So uh, that's why we're here, uh, but we were trying to backtrack and figure out, gee, what did we really mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> Except for what, it, what was very clear um, is that the visible few uh, includes many of the providers that are caring for the patients and the patients themselves who had almost uh, uh, no, no visibility. And so to start with, um, you know, without going through the entirety of the CDC guidelines, that, that's kind of the... the um, the beginning of how a lot of this all happened uh, when they were improved uh, in 2016. Um, and I, you know, by the time I'm to this, my, my last lecture for the, for the series this week, I'm so fried. I'm like, I better, I better bring some props here because I'm going to forget something. So um, one of the things that I did want to point out, um, I mean, I think that there are some great attributes to the CDC guidelines, um, but um, according to National Clearinghouse, um, uh, criteria, uh, in order to have level, level A evidence, you need to have two class one studies. And if you go through the CDC guidelines, all 12 recommendations were based on either level three, 
which is case-based, uh, or level four, which is expert opinion. Um, but nevertheless, all of those 12 criteria were given level A recommendations. And I think that it's important to point that out right from the beginning um, because of all of the commotion that, this is, that has happened beyond the CDC guidelines and some of the ba- backtracking that we're seeing now. Uh, Jeff, how does it compare to some of the other consensus guidelines that preceded it? That, that's, that's a great question. So in 2009, uh, the consensus guidelines by APS and AAPM, were you involved with those? I, I, can't, I was I, not. Okay. No. I was involved with those in 2009. And I'll tell you, boy, we, we were <coughs> extremely careful. We went through thousands and thousands of, of articles. Uh, the main author was Dr. Roger Chu. And then we pared them all down and, and, you know, to see what would meet the criteria. And we went through all the levels of evidence and only used the best articles in order to come up with these guidelines. So it was 100% evidence-based. You know? and, and, and then back then we talked about um, high-dose opioids being 200 milligram morphine equivalents or more. Um, and we had different stopgats, and we talked about urine drug screens and the kind of practical things that you should be doing if you're treating patients with uh, um, uh, chronic opioids for non-cancer pain. Uh, so that was the, the original ones. And then AAPM came out with consensus guidelines in 2018, which were also evidence-based. And all the other ones to follow them also were very evidence-based, uh, very scientific, and the CDCs, we're not. Well, I, I think to be fair, they did uh, a, a large amount of research, and it was a consensus-based um, uh, recommendation as well. And Dr. Chow was uh, a co-author on those guidelines. All, all, all true, but yeah. I mean, don't you? Well, all true, but I, I still say that. I mean, it's it's clear that a lot of those guidelines are based on. Lower, lower levels, lower of, evidence. Level, levels yeah. of evidence. Yeah, because there's not much evidence for anything we're doing. Right. That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter which guideline we're using. There's not much evidence. So we're going to now move into some of the consequences and the reactions of the CDC guidelines. I'm going to start with this image. This is two years of emails I received from people across the country since 2016 asking if not begging for my help, because they didn't know how they were going to get their pain treated because of the way in which they were being denied access to treatment or sometimes just totally um, uh, discharged from a practice. Since then, I have another volume or two. It's enormous burden. That's part of the burden that we talked about, the imperfect burden on patients, but also on all of us as providers. I assume most everybody in here is a provider somewhere in that healthcare system. Um, it has had a major impact, but few people, few people in the media, few uh, people recognize their voices. So this is the invisible few, or many, I should say. Jeff, you've had your contacts as well. Yes, I have, uh, but I have not printed the mountain volumes like you did. Because I think I'd have to... The image works, doesn't it? I, yeah, I'd have, to, I'd have to rent another space. So um, one example on one of my blogs, um, Chronic Opioid Patients Speak Out Against uh, Prop. This is, this is way back before the CDC guidelines, uh, but which kind of led up to, um, I would say, may, maybe led up to some of the, uh, the CDC guidelines because the uh, Prop Group, Physicians for Rational Opioid Prescribing, um, they filed a petition to the FDA 
um, with, with hard cutoffs and, and that sort of thing. But anyway, patients started to panic back then. Um, and this was in 2012. And I, I probably have comments this week, but to have uh, 942 comments on, on, on a blog is like unheard of. Right? You, have to, you have to be an author or a columnist for the Washington Post or New York hey, Times yeah, to yeah. be approaching that level. Right, it's, 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 it's crazy. And so, and, and I've got several, I've only put a couple of on, on here, but I've got several other blogs, somewhere over 1,000 comments, and they're still coming in from 2012. Um, patients share humanistic side of living in pain amid lawmaker opioid hysteria. Um, patients jumped on that. Um, here's 228 comments. So there's no shortage of comments, and I also um, get emails from patients and comments on these blogs begging me for help. I can't answer my phone anymore because you know, somehow they get, it gets through my office and comes through, and there be people are, I mean, the stories that they tell you and write about are just incredible. What would be the theme? What do you think the baseline theme is then for most of the comments? Um, well, I can tell you what the most popular ones. One is uh, rapid taper. Um, what do you mean their objection to it, the, the impact it's had on them, or that they think it's a great idea? <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, actually, it's all of the above. Some of them have given up and said, you know what? I, I don't want to be on opioids anymore, but the way that they're being tapered is, is, is making me ill. You know, so I'm looking for something. I'm, I've, you know, some people tell me to turn to Kratom or, or uh, cannabidiol or whatever. Um, what do you think about that? So I've got those. I've got so turning to the street. Uh, turning to the street. Yeah. Okay. Turn, um, I've got. So then you. I've had whole patient communities um, start to banter back and forth. Well, you know, I went to a methadone clinic because there's nothing else that I could do. I don't think I have an addiction problem, but but I, you know, I'm I'm kind of left out in the cold. I don't know what to do. Um, other patients are like, um, I've been on these opioids for for 20 years. And now I'm being told they have to be cut in half. Um, and, and, and then I get emails um, or, or comments from the children of some of these people. My grandmother is 77 years old, and she's been on these opioids all this time. And the doctor did a urine screen, and it came back positive for some crazy thing. She's like, my, my grandmother doesn't even know what this is. Uh, so these patients are just reaching out, out for help. So I think we want to be clear, though, to everybody. We recognize there's an opioid problem. There's a drug problem in our country, um, and it's a very serious one. We're not discounting that, but we also feel that there um, uh, is a large population that we've been treating for a long time that have been uh, largely ignored since the CDC guidelines have come out. But under-treatment of pain has always been a serious problem in America, probably worldwide. One of, our, one of our colleagues, you may have read uh, uh, some of what he has written, uh, Thomas Klein, stated, we have a terrible problem. We have people committing suicide or no other reason, for, uh, no other reason than being forced to stop opioids, pain medications for chronic pain. He says, it's mass hysteria, witch hunt. It's one of the worst health care crises in our history. There are five to seven million people being tortured, he says, on purpose. I don't know that I would agree that it's on purpose, but there are a lot of people who are suffering a great deal. I don't think anybody intentionally wants to harm people as well intended uh, or on, uh, the, the consequences that may be unintended uh, that follow the CDC guidelines or other efforts. you have any comment about that before I start here? Um, 
I'm not really sure how to word this because I don't want to offend anybody, but here's something that I, that I have seen. There are some providers that really don't want to be caught in the crossfire anymore, and they want to get patients off, and they want to get them off quickly off of opioids. And so one of the things that I've seen uh, is that, so for example, a lot of policies now, including the CDC guidelines and other guidelines, say that you should be doing urine screens. And so what's happening is a lot of clinicians are doing urine screens and really don't know how to interpret them. And then patients are being falsely accused of, doing, uh, of wrongdoing. And I, you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but it almost seems like in some cases it's being used as an excuse to take a patient off of an opioid. I don't know if you've seen that. Well, I think there's always been a lack of understanding of how to interpret a urine drug test, but uh, I do believe that there is a lot of fear amongst providers, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to talk more about what that fear is and how that has impact the visible few. I want to discuss a little bit about the history of what this term high dose is. It seems like if it's repeated enough in the literature or in uh, the media, frankly, not just the literature about what is high dose, but it's both, then we begin to assume that that is a high dose. And we don't understand what the basis of that definition or that term phrase is. What is a high dose? Jeff just mentioned that the APS, American uh, Academy of Pain Medicine guidelines, uh, uh, earlier than the CDC, had suggested 200 milligrams morphine equivalent. We'll get into morphine equivalent also in a moment. But that was considered, above that would be considered a high dose. Um, I think the origin of the concern about dose started back in 2003 with the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine um, where there was a concern that patients above 180 milligrams morphine equivalent probably were not benefiting in most instances. But that w wasn't defined as high dose. It wasn't def uh, the article did not describe uh, it to be inappropriate to be above 180, but did suggest that it's likely most people are not benefiting above 180 milligrams. Then ASEP, uh, American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, uh, suggested that 50 milligrams a day would be a high dose. And again, not with uh, uh, much evidence, as Jeff has talked about uh, already. And, and then the state of Washington, as most of you may recall, had introduced through their medical directors in the state um, uh, program that 120 milligrams is probably high dose because they thought that people above that dose had a greater risk of harm and that there was little benefit. And again, that there wasn't a great deal of evidence except retrospective, and later it was demonstrated that that dose actually was not indicative of the high-risk population, at least in one paper. And then the American Academy of Pain Medicine, APS guidelines, suggest 200 milligrams, and following that, we get the CDC guidelines uh, suggesting 50 or 90 milligrams is high dose based upon retrospective studies looking at what breakpoint you might see or you do see a significant increase in overdose deaths. Not that it is due to the opioid necessarily, but it's associated. There was not a cause and effect, but an association, which is really, really important because if you take out the, uh, the other medications like benzodiazepines, then the risk of uh, overdose based upon other studies is probably closer to the 200 milligram level, and it's not dose proportional. Jeff? I, I agree, I, um, and I think that we have to be very careful 
of spurious correlations. And in fact, I don't know if you recall a blog that I wrote talking about that, how, how yes. you, you could show that the sales of potato chips during Super Bowl Sunday uh, correlated to prescribing of opioids. So, I mean, you know, it probably has no, cor it probably has no cause and effect, but it is what it is, and the lines are very superimposable. So, you know, we have this discussion uh, uh, often about morphine milligram equivalents. You have written uh, a couple of articles on it. Will you educate us all about what morphine milligram equivalents means, Jeff? Yes. So, uh, hopefully, you're willing to skip lunch and dinner. Um, <laughs> but no, I'll kind of give you the short, the short synopsis here. Um, the, there, there are, first of all, at least in my mind, there really isn't a, a morphine milligram equivalent, uh, certainly not that, that we all agree on. That's the first thing. <clears throat> the attention of a morphine milligram equivalent was the analgesic equivalent, not the, tox not the toxicology equivalent or, or the accumulation of CO2 or respiratory depression equivalent. That's very different than equating analgesia. And in fact, for those of you that, that heard my lecture on, on Wednesday, um, you don't even need to have an opioid compared to another opioid. Right? You can have an opioid compared to a non-opioid because you're looking for analgesia equivalent. In fact, it's very interesting that one of my colleagues who you, you know, uh, Dr. Jeff Benger, said to me the other day, you know, when I heard you say that, when I heard you say that, <laughs> okay. You know what that is? Oh. <laughs> Continue, Jeff. I'll be back. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, we'll come back to that. Uh, so let's talk about morphine equivalents. Uh, so, so basically, um, you, you know, the, the issues are that, that it's not, it's not uh, a specific thing. So it can, it can vary by, um, by genetic differences. It can vary because of drug interactions. You can, the blood levels of a drug can go up or down if you take away or add another drug. So there are all kinds of individual problems. So what I was saying to you is that, that uh, Jeff Bencher said to me, you know, you're going to speak to Lynn Webster. Doesn't he have a lab? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you know what? We should actually do a, a morphine milligram equivalent for toxicity. Like, what is the opiate equivalent for toxicity? That would be pretty cool. Has that been done? You, well, you mean... Uh, you, words, you want to know what dose kills people or what? Well, yeah. So, so what, what is the equivalent... Uh, in toxicity from, from different opioids, not, uh, not right. efficacy. Yeah. Do we have that data? Uh, oh, no. Not, no. Uh, not objective data, we don't, but we're beginning to look at that uh, by looking at respiratory depression. Right. That will be uh, a, maybe a surrogate model for... So that would be cool, because then yeah. I think that we could have some kind of cutoffs and say these are, these are what is fair. But to base it on analgesia and say this is, I mean, that, that's, that's a problem. So there, there was this article that, that, I, that I wrote um, uh, with uh, colleagues uh, Chapman. If you can't and, see, the author here is the man to my left. Uh, and uh, Dr. Chapman and Dr. Clary. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and so basically what we outlined in here with the original intent of morphine equivalents that, again, it was analgesia. Um, it, it has nothing to do with toxicity, really. Um, we pointed out all the, ver the variable problems with, uh, again, genetics and drug interactions, uh, interpatient variability for a variety of reasons, 
opioid receptor differences, the differences among drugs, there's certain drugs you shouldn't even be comparing. For example, you should not be comparing methadone, I, I know we agree on this, uh, to, to morphine because methadone is multi-mechanistic, uh, because the kinetics are just crazy, because the, the half-life is, is very variable. So in here, basically, the, the last part of our article said, and it's quoted here, in our opinion, um, impressionist lawmakers and anti-opioid zealots uh, are basing clinical policy decisions on flawed concepts that ultimately could adversely affect positive outcomes for legitimate pain patients. In other words, the short of that is that we should not be using morphine equivalents to, to punish people and to be a hard and fast stop. So we, let's move into some of the unintended consequences. We can kind of group this into three different categories. The misapplication of, uh, of the intended uh, uh, recommendations, this issue about the morphine milligram equivalents and what 90 milligrams that threshold has done, and uh, some broad adoptions of the limits. These are three of the um, consequences that, or I should say, three of the issues that have led to uh, unintended consequences. One of these, as, uh, as some of you probably know, who are at least from Oregon, is that the Oregon Medicaid program had proposed l last year that all chronic pain patients be taken off of opioids. All chronic pain patients be taken off of opioids. Now, they've gone through some... Um, discussions, and there has been a fair amount of input from outside the state, uh, from some of the professional organizations. Letters have been written, and there uh, was a halt to this, uh, to this uh, adoption. Um, right now, uh, I'm not sure where it is, but it's not, and it's not clearly where it started, and that's a good thing. But um, this, is, this is where that visible few are a visible many, meaning that there are a lot of people that are paying the consequences, largely because it's been referenced, that is the CDC guidelines have been referenced as the genesis for their approach uh, in Oregon. And, and you know, um, I, I do want to bring up. Yes. So, so in, in uh, January of 2019, um, we kind of addressed the guidelines before they became official. Remember we had that little time that we could, we might, um, and so at the time in January, uh, there was four, over 4,000 comments on the Federal Register. Um, and one of the comments that, that we put in, and I, 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 you know, I'd like to hear your, your comment on this, um, but I'm just going to read this to you, um, is that the proposed CDC draft guidelines, so this is before they became official, um, for opioid prescribing will likely have a tremendous negative impact on many, millions of patients. We extend our heartfelt condolences to those who have lost loved ones or family members to an opioid overdose, and we sympathize with the million of Amer millions of Americans affected by, uh, by chronic pain. However, we believe that the issues, and this is in January 2016, uh, we believe uh, that the issues addressed by CDC guidelines are multifaceted uh, and, and, and really require zealots on each side of the camp to come together, right? So that, you know, it shouldn't just be anti-opioid people, people in favor of opioids, uh, but that well-trained clinicians, clinicians in the fields of pharmacy medicine working collaboratively uh, could help alleviate it. And we predicted back then that it was going to have an adverse outcome on patients, specifically uh, because it was going to be looked upon as policy. Policy, yes. And we're going to sh uh, show how that's been adopted in many areas as a policy uh, as well. And what one of the reactions that I was referring to the, uh, following the uh, or Oregon uh, Medicaid proposal was a letter written by a lot of the leading 
experts in the field, and it came from Stanford with Dr. Mackey. Most of you probably know who he is. And many of us signed this letter asking them not to go forward with this policy. And I believe it was this letter that at least allowed some um, room for them to uh, engage in a more robust uh, discussion and hasn't moved forward. Now, we talk about the adoption of the guidelines as a policy or as a law, almost the, almost the strength of a law. Um, Senator Wyden from, uh, uh, from Oregon, as you know, um, had real serious objection to members of some of the uh, NIH uh, members on the Interagency Pain Task Force because, as he said, they uh, might have some financial ties uh, to industry. And so he, he seriously objected to anybody with any uh, ties to industry being a part of an advisory committee, even if it's all well-intended and good and it's all fully disclosed, as if those who don't have any ties are pure and don't have any biases. So, I mean, we, that's a whole other discussion to talk about the ethics of disclosure and biases and influence. It's all legitimate discussion, in my view, that it needs to be above board transparent. But just because we have somebody who has consulted to, to uh, industry doesn't necessarily make their voice uh, unimportant. Jeff? I, I mean, I think that, you know, since, since a lot of us know a lot of the people in the pain field, I think it might be worth mentioning what actually happened. Go ahead. What the accusation, so uh, Dr. Cheng, who is the, I think he's the president, right, of, of, of AAPM, uh, he has no conflict of interest as far as I know. Now, you know, uh, AAPM uh, partners with pharmaceutical industry for, for sure, but Dr. Uh, Cheng, for three years leading up to this, had no conflict of interest. Um, Dr. Gallagher, who I know well, and is the uh, editor-in-chief for pain medicine in AAPM Journal, he cut off ties with any industry 10 years. A decade years, ago. A de yeah. Right, 10 years ago, right? Um, there was other, now, a lot of you know doctors uh, Terman and Lynn McPherson, and there is no way. I mean, I know for sure, I know, I know Dr. McPherson very well that there was no conflict of interest. Um, but, but still, you know, I, you know, to see something like that is kind of heart-wrenching to me, you know? So we go on, and the, the centers, uh, CMS had uh, taken the CDC guidelines and intended to implement a 50 milligram threshold initially, that if you exceed that 50 milligram threshold, then you would have to go through a lot of hoops to override it and perhaps even set up, um, I think, a confrontational interaction with your pharmacist. You know, Jeff and I have written about this before, and we've talked about it, how we really need to be collaborative. And when you say that the pharmacist is going to be the, uh, the policeman uh, regulating whether or not our, uh, the physicians or uh, other providers' prescriptions are going to be authorized doesn't set up the right relationship. Uh, I agree. I think that there are, there are some good some bad and some ugly things about, about this. Um, yes. Right? I mean, I think it is probably good that, that people are being monitoring, monitored. So, for example, um, it's kind of nice to have an automation where if a person's going to three different physicians and three different pharmacies. As was proposed. As, right. I, I think it's kind of good, you know. Yeah. And, and, and these patients will actually get a letter, and, and some of the providers, 
a copy of the letter, and they'll give, be given 30 days to, re, to reply to that letter, and then they'll receive a second letter and say, okay, you're going to one provider, you're going to one pharmacy. That's good. Well, yeah. even the 120 milligrams might be reasonable in some situations, but there could be many examples of where a, a dose above 120 milligram uh, for a decade or two without any signs of aberrant behavior should not be disturbed. Of, of course. And so, and so what is going to happen by these, by these guidelines, um, and, and this could uh, hopefully will not pit you know, prescribers against, against people dispensing these drugs. Uh, so if you, if you reach that 90 milligram threshold, it's going to be potentially problematic. So for example, if you had a patient on 30 milligrams of extended release morphine twice a day, um, and somebody else put a patient on, I don't know, five milligrams of hydrocodone uh, every four hours, and then uh, uh, and th- let's, say, let's say it's a pain clinician. Let's say that you did that. And, and, and now the patient's uh, j- still below 90 milligram morphine equivalent. And then they go back to primary care, and they get hydrocodone cough syrup or codeine cough syrup, and it tips them above, above that 90. Then all of a sudden, there, there's a stop. There's a hard stop. The pharmacy For all of it. For all, for all of it. But the person that gets notified, the person that causes the stop, is the last person that wrote that prescription. But the pharmacist is the one that needs to deal with it. You've got to deliver the message. Correct. And they may get shot. Yeah, well. (laughs) Yes. We have also seen that. Yes? Yeah. Um, I just want to make a comment on this. So, just so that you uh, overhear it in case you didn't hear, the comment was that uh, inpatient pharmacy, she's an inpatient pharmacist and her husband has chronic pain, having difficulty accessing, even when noticing or notifying the pharmacist that they're going to need some medicines, the distributors are limiting uh, the amount they're distributing to various pharmacies because, you know, many of them are all in the plaintiff lawsuits and they're supposed to um, be responsible or at least they're being held accountable. And, you know, so even beyond that, and, yeah. and it, you know, if anybody in Florida here, maybe correct me if this has changed, uh, but in Florida, um, pharmacy, ph- pharmacies can only purchase a certain amount of drug from a wholesaler. And, and so patients will come in, like new patients that come in will say, can you take me as a patient? And the pharmacy may say, I, I don't have the supply to, to do that. And you may get patients driving all over because they also have the zip code thing. And so a patient finally finds a pharmacy that will fill the prescription, and they get to the pharmacy, the pharmacist is willing to fill it, and says, what's your address? Oh, you're outside the zip code. I can't fill that prescription. And now, now you've got two pharmacies or three pharmacies, and now you are a target because of the multiple pharmacies and the distance. So it's a, you know, it's a catch-22. Yeah. Well, one of the reactions, though, that is uh, uh, on a more positive side is through NIH's um, uh, Pain Management Best Practice Interagency Task Force, where their recognition is the following. Basically, they recognized the unintended consequences that have resulted following the release of the, C- uh, the 2016 guidelines which are due in part to misapplication or misinterpretation of the guideline, including forced tapers and patient abandonment. So, all right, uh, the, the, the visible few are being heard a little bit by a subset of uh, the policymakers, and this is a good sign. This is somebody who's trying to listen. So can I, I just want to make a couple comments yeah. on that. I think that the HHS task force response was awesome. Yeah. I, I think overall, but I do want Very to, thoughtful. Very thoughtful. But I do want to point out some things that I think they 
kind of fell short on. Sure. Is that fair? You bet. Okay. So I, I, I pulled it apart and I looked at the panel of people. And again, it was awesome. They did a phenomenal job. However, this is about... It's not the food and perfect. No, it's not the food, no, it's not the food and okay. perfect. Okay. <laughs> but it's close. On the panel were 20 physicians and two pharmacists. I love you, Lynn, but I see it as a problem. We're talking about drug therapy. Right? Um, I think we should have had probably uh, multiple pharmacists, uh, yeah. some in industry, yeah, yeah. some in wholesale, some in community. They had three PhD administrators. I don't know what they did. Two PhD academics. I don't know if they were behavior health. They had one patient advocate. That's a problem. Um, and they had That's one. That's a big problem. It's a big problem. They had one other. Uh, and they had no physical therapists, no chiropractors. No, so, I mean, to me, that's an issue. They did a great job. But I, I still think it needs to be pointed out. Um, they really nicely highlight, highlighted the CDC gaps, and they also gave them credit uh, where it was due. They made mention of buprenorphine as a great alternative, but still, if you can't access it, what good is it? Like, yeah. you know, right? And um, did not mention Depentadol. Did mention abusive term formulations, but I don't think they expanded on it enough. I think it was a great step forward. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, no, I don't mean to take anything away from yeah. them, but I just want to put it all out. Yeah. There. So, you know, there are 33 states that have used the CDC, CDC guidelines to adopt laws or regulations that if you fall outside uh, of those could be, um, uh, it could be harmful to your uh, ability to practice in those states. And there's one uh, medical board that I, uh, one situation, there are more, uh, but this one I think is particularly interesting because this is the... Uh, medical director of the uh, Michigan uh, Medicaid program, and he received many awards for his advocacy and his attempts to try to improve the problem of uh, opioid misuse and abuse in the state of Michigan through the Medicaid population. But he was disciplined, basically, placed in, uh, 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 he was suspended from his job because he has maybe 80 patients, I believe, is what I read in the newspaper that he was prescribing opioids to, and he didn't do a prescription monitoring report every time every patient came in. He, there were a list of different things. He didn't do a urine drug test every time patients came in. He didn't, uh, he did, he had, quote, high dose. Uh, and about two-thirds of the patients were uh, palliative care cancer patients. So, again, Looking at the CDC guidelines and using those numbers and recommendations, those doses, and, 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 and as policy, cost him a significant uh, amount because of his job. And, it, so, and you know, so like I don't want to judge him because I don't know. Yeah, I'm not judging I, you. I didn't, I didn't see the records, but like some of the news reports said that he had prescribed 28,000 pills uh, of oxycodone. Uh, what does that mean? 28,000 pills over 20 years? You know, were they five milligrams or were they 60 milligrams? Uh, you know, I, I just don't know. But we do get a lot of sensationalization, so I don't know if it's legitimate. number of pills are meaningless to me unless we can put it into context. Exactly. Uh, so what about the pharmacy chains? So How have they adopted the CDC guidelines? So a lot of the pharmacy chains started adopting the, pharma, the, the, the CDC guidelines before any of the CMS stuff came along. So they, they put seven-day limits on, on, on prescriptions for uh, opioid-naive patients or for acute pain. That's potentially problematic because if you have a patient discharged from a hospital after a major surgery and you know that they're going to require uh, opioids for a month or so, 
you know, that may require four, four renewals, four co-pays, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, so uh, I, I think it's kind of an inconvenience uh, in some cases. In other cases, it's good, but I, I feel like it, it needs to be very individualized. And, right? But the policies are not necessarily. The policies yeah. are I mean, not. It, they, you, uh, the providers have to uh, jump through a lot of hoops to override what the chains have implemented. Uh, yes. And, and we have two of them, basically. And you can see this with this slide. You can't read this very well. But basically, both or all of the major chains have adopted the, the three-day limit, seven-day limit, or the 90 milligrams. And if you exceed that um, or 90 days of a prescription, then it's a lot more work for the provider and usually a confrontation with the uh, pharmacist. And, you know, it's also probably important to point out that with the CMS guidelines, who have adopted similar policies now, since they have contracts with private payers, the private payer can put another layer of blocks on this. Yeah. And the, pharm- the pharmacy has to adhere to that because they won't be able to generate a label and fill the prescription. And it's not just the clinical field. You know, it's not, not the healthcare field, but it's also the Department of Justice. Here, um, the, uh, the Attorney General in Atlanta made, its, made a statement that uh, some 30 doctors were put on notice. We probably, you all probably remember reading about this, and they may, that may have been all appropriate. I don't know. But it is an attitude because in the same, uh, or I should say the, the, by the Attorney General of the Department of Justice, because uh, in an article that was published in, the, in Fox News, there are many physicians out there that are being targeted just because of the dose limit just because of the dose limit. I know I defend some of these doctors who are having uh, problems because they've exceeded the dose, and it's an implication that uh, the doctor is not practicing within the, the guidelines. One other is, that here's the attorneys general objecting to the composition again of, or, the, or the letters to, the, uh, to NIH and the Interagency Task Force for Pain Management the uh, attorneys general objected to changing or modifying some, t- some of the guidelines because they thought that the CDC guidelines were appropriate. Basically, they are telling uh, the advisors who object to those guideline limits be- as being too hard that they don't know what they're talking about, but the attorneys general do. <laughs> Well, a good side here is, is that in New Hampshire, though, um, at least uh, there was some initiation that a physician who refused uh, to treat a person for their pain, chronic pain, and was forced to taper was at least verbally disciplined. I'm not sure I've been able to follow up and find out any more details. Do you know any the, of The family the, was awarded money. Oh, there. is that right? Yeah. A lot of money. A lot of money. Oh. Uh-oh. That's just another squeeze for all of you. You know, it's, it reminds me of 20 years ago when we all recognized there was a large amount of untreated pain or undertreated pain, and we should treat it. Well, it's still true. There's still a large amount of undertreated and untreated pain, but we're also, we also have some people who have received way too many opioids, and so all of the attack is on one of the treatment options for them. It sure is going to be a delicate balance, though. 
because you know you're damned if you do and damned if you damned don't. Damned if you, if you do. Don't like. Yeah, right. <laughs> Rock and a hard spot is a topic of one article published in a medical uh, legal journal and describing exactly that issue, that conflict that we have. And uh, a recent publication in BuzzFeed this last year talked about the percent of physicians who are no longer uh, prescribing or at least have uh, decreased the amounts at 70% now have dramatically reduced or eliminated uh, altogether the prescribing of opioids. This is some of the raw data here. Um, and then we've got uh, a report that was published, I think it was December of last year, from Human Rights Watch, who had surveyed the country, gone to meetings like this. Maybe they were here. I think they were here last year, actually. Yeah. Um, and at the APS, APM uh, uh, meetings. And the conclusion of the director here is the international community should address the poor availability of pain treatment with urgency. For too long, the global drug policy debate has been strongly focused on prevention of the use of the trade of illicit drugs, dis distorting the balance that was envisioned. It sounds like today, with regard to opioids in the population of people with pain, it's all about the harm, not necessarily the harm of untreated or non-treated pain. Comment, Jeff? Uh, no, I'm right on board with that. Okay. So... Here, yeah, the, uh, the director said, clearly there are patients now who feel like life is not worth living if they, turn, if, they, if they return to living in pain. That is what we started the whole discussion with, uh, with that video, if you remember, of the person who committed suicide. And, and part of the national narrative has clearly been supported by our uh, national media. Washington Post, New York Times are probably the two t most significant that have, have supported the CDC guidelines. And here, uh, Charles Lane with the Washington Post has been very much anti-opioid, very pro-CDC guidelines, and assumes that everything that was in the guideline is the absolute best thing for America as he states here, that anybody who objected, or in fact, this was all referenced to the Human Rights Watch report, says that uh, moderate public health policies just do not belong in the same moral conversation as deliberate human rights violations such as policy or police brutality or torture. It, it is a perspective that we have to uh, address. I mean, you know, if you look back at some of the um, Helsinki guidelines and stuff like that, abrupt taper could be considered torture. Yeah, there are laws that preclude this from jail, right, that you can't take somebody that's addicted and take away their opioids if they're on MAT. I can assure you I've seen uh, people go into withdrawal, no. <laughs> and it is torture. Yes. It is torture when they have to go in. So this, uh, sorry, this was to be deleted, these two slides. So um, in, a, in an effort to try to bring some balance to the discussion. Uh, over 200 providers, Jeff and I were uh, amongst these, that signed a letter that one of our colleagues had initiated to the CDC to clarify some of the CDC guidelines. Um, and, as, and there has been some, um, some in the uh, state Senate, or I should say in our U.S. Senate, who have heard some of the visible few. Senator Alexander says the, uh, there have been unintended consequences and that basically they've misunderstood the application of these CDC guidelines, although nothing has come out of this. At least we have 
at least one senator who's recognized the potential harm. And Jeff, you've been oh, here, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So I've actually interacted with a lot of these patients. This is incredible that, that patients are, are kind of picketing the CDC. <laughs> I mean, you know, or the government saying, you know, we, we, we don't know what else to do, right? And I don't know if anybody in here follows wives or not, um, but um, they, had a, they had an article posted, the unseen victim, quote, the unseen victims of the opioid crisis are starting to rebel. So maybe the visible few are becoming visible, hopefully. So where are we now then? Uh, pain medicine uh, reported, uh, pain medicine news, I should say, uh, that uh, nearly three years later, the CDC's acknowledged basically that they, they, uh, uh, there's been a misapplication, misdirection of some of the um, uh, uh, policies or some of the recommendations. And one of the lead authors here, or the lead authors, uh, Debbie Dowell, states, we have heard about the suicides. It's tragic that anyone takes their life for any reason, including that they had their opioids unilaterally stopped, forced, tapered. The CDC director, Jeff? Yes. So, yeah, so Redfield also um, said that, uh, that they're working diligently to, to reverse some of the you know, the policy changes as a result of CDC, and they want to clarify what they really meant. And he actually sent out uh, a letter. This is the letter right yeah, down here, letter. you can see. Um, and, and it clarifies within that letter, you know, what, what some of the issues are. And, but, but still, you know, the, this, the, the ball started to roll down the hill, and a lot of these policies are in place, and now it's going to be difficult to reverse them. Very difficult. AMA has come out also to try to um, put their stamp on the misapplication of the CDC guidelines, stating that basically... The, there's been an overreach, and you can read this particular statement on your own, but there are two, two of our major journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, under, uh, 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 um, published an article by the authors of the CDC guideline, as did JAMA, stating that the uh, guidelines have been misapplied and that there needs to be careful consideration of the benefits and risks of treatment options, not the unilateral removal or elimination of opioids for people for whom they benefit. And, and in fact, um, made a list of, of the people that are opposed to these tapers. It's the U.S. Centers for Disease Control now. Came up the statement by U.S. Federal Drug Administration, the AMA, and the Surgeon General have all agreed. Yeah. So, as you say, though, since it's, you know, the horse is out of the barn, it's pretty hard to get that horse back right. in. Um, the, uh, uh, the interagency recommendations, as I've referred to earlier, is also recognized one size does not fit all. This is a good thing, and this is by its, its chairman, um, and hopefully this message will be heard more. Um, and the gentleman who put together the physician, addictionologist, the professor from Alabama, uh, uh, Stefan uh, Kurtzatz, is the one that authored the letter that went to the CDC uh, director. And his comment is that we're targeting the most vulnerable of the sickest people who have been on opioids a long time. This is an addictionologist, not a, not a pain physician. Um, so I'm going to conclude with just a, a, an email that was sent to me. It said, Dr. Webster, I came across a publication of yours. It struck a nerve with me. My pain is intractable. I've tried everything. Before the exam room door even closes, he announces to me, if you think I'm just here to refill your pills, you can leave now. I left in tears. 
I was being judged and punished for having a complication from cancer treatment. I completely understand the opioid crisis, but I feel impotent to do anything. The advice I have to offer is don't get sick. Don't get cancer. And if you survive, don't get nerve damage from the very medication that saved your life. Please keep speaking up for the rights of patients to have adequate pain management by a physician, Dr. Burnenfield. Thank you very much.